This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Nick Ashburn. Dollars and Change is live every Thursday from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern and 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific, replayed throughout the week. And as always, you can find us on the Sirius app. Hey, Sandy. Hello. How are you? Happy birthday, Nick. Oh, happy belated to me. Just want to give a big shout out and happy birthday, Dion. Dion, our sound engineer, associate producer. What up? Very excited. We have two birthday boys in the studio here today. Um, wishing you guys a wonderful year. Thank you. We're both cancers. Well, I don't know really much about astrology. What does that mean? Tell Nisa does. Nisa, you'll have to call in and, and tell us all about it. Yes. That's our <laughs> communications manager. She's, she's very up on this stuff. Well, happy birthday to you both. Thank you. I'll try to give you a great show as a, as a gift here, hopefully to you and to all of our listeners. Um, we've got a great show in store today. We've got two guests. Uh, really, we'll be digging into the topic of race today. So we're going to start our show uh, talking to Cynthia Muller. Cynthia is the Director of Mission Investment at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Um, They are interrupting racial bias in big capital markets, and they've been focused and remain focused on, you know, addressing systemic barriers to create vulnerable conditions for historically marginalized communities and children. So an important conversation. And then continuing on the theme at the bottom of the hour, we'll be talking to Danielle Solomon. Danielle is the vice president of race and ethnicity policy at American Progress. So an incredibly important topic. And listeners, we hope you you know stay with us and learn a lot throughout our show today. Well, and just so our listeners know, um, for the bottom of the hour, too, we'll be talking about reparations, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty heavy topic. Uh, but it was recently in the news as H.R. 40, a bill in, I think, the House of Representatives, yep. as it's H.R., uh, was introduced um, to to explore that or to to research what the effects of that might be. So uh, excited to dive in in with uh, with Danielle on that. Yeah, and there's certainly no shortage of conversations, important and necessary conversations on race today. And the unique angle we'll be bringing to that is that this is business radio. So when we talk about reparations, part of the you know HR forty exploration is quantifying you know, the impact of these things and, and how do we make things right and what do we know about the impacts? And we're coming at that from a business lens, from a quant lens. So I hope it will be a um, additive dimension to these complex and important conversations. Absolutely. And, you know, neither of us are experts in this area, so we're really excited to learn. Yes, absolutely. So let's kick off. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I'm glad to be here. Kellogg- and, uh, happy birthday to everybody. <laughs> oh, thank you. I mean, thank come you. on. You can't even you can't start a show without birthday recognition. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. So, Cynthia Kellogg's a household name, but tell us a little bit about the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Sure. Yeah. So, we're it's a short story. Is we're a foundation. We have about eight billion in assets. Uh, under management, and we give a, a little bit um, over four hundred million in grants every year. And we're about a ninety-year-old um, institution. We were founded by serial entrepreneur Will Keith Kellogg, and um, whose mandate for us was to make sure that the children um, were and uh, America's children were thriving and had access to everything that they needed to have healthy, productive. Um, and, and thriving childhoods. And so that's really what drives our core mission, um, healthy communities, healthy families, 
um, and, and healthy access um, to um, those resources. I lead our impact investing practice, which was launched about 12 years ago. And the idea here is leveraging um, about $100 million of our endowment, a little bit more than that, actually, to um, drive um, positive social change in the capital markets. And um, and so for us, it's really about you know connecting all of our tools, the grant making, um, obviously our tremendous endowment, but also um, what we've learned um, uh, over the 90 years of uh, our institution's history. And I just want to remind our listeners, you know, we we have certainly broken this down on the show before, but if you're new, um, you know, foundations as as uh, Cynthia mentioned have sort of a, a suite of opportunities at, and tools at their disposal. So there's traditional grant making, which I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with. There are. Mi- a- program-related investments that can come out of that grant-making money. But then what we're talking about here today specifically is really mission investing and the endowment dollars that are invested in capital markets every day. And how might, uh, Cynthia, in your role, how might you be thinking around um, maximizing impact or pushing the needle through the capital markets through your investments? Yeah, and I'll, I'll reiterate one dimension for our listeners. When you think about a foundation, and we could all we're all probably familiar with some foundation in the community, The law states that 5% of the total assets, like the total amount of capital of of that foundation that's invested, has to be given out in the charitable way we imagine foundations involving engaging in our communities, the grants and, you know, activities they do. The corpus, the 95%-ish of of capital that sits in investments is what we're talking about. And it's a, a part of foundations that often sort of aren't discussed. Well, we discuss them a lot. But, you know, when you talk about a foundation, the the emphasis is often on that grant making. So now we're talking about that corpus. So take it away, Cynthia. Yeah, yeah. And, And private foundations were such a unique animal because, you know, the idea here is to um, to house these assets left by these benefactors, um, you know, and some alive, some um, not. And, you know, when we think about, um, you know, our foundation, all of the other foundations, even the ones that are yet to be born, you know, that's a lot of money. And so for all of us who are committed in our own way to um, doing good, whatever that may mean for an individual foundation, it seems, and, and it's been exciting over the last 20 years or so, that, you know, there's an opportunity for us to think about the broader endowment. And I think for us here at the foundation, when our board approved us doing this work in 2007, I think for them, they were really focusing on, like, how do we maximize all that we have um, in the effort to support our mission um, of, of protecting children. And so we've been very, very diligent on making that connection back to um, our, our programmatic lens, which is really challenging, to say um, the least, but nonetheless, when we're, we've had a lot of our peers like Ford and, and Serna and MacArthur and others who have been um, on their own journey as well. So we also, we did take a, quite a risk kind of jumping off the... Yeah, you guys are early, early adopters. Yeah. But I think for us, it was one of those things and, you know, and we've had a history um, as an institution of kind of taking risks um, in terms of, you know, new programmings and approaches and, and whatnot. And I, and I have to say that, you know, our leadership and our board in particular have been instrumental in the maintaining um, uh, kind of this focus and this learning and reporting back out uh, what we're what we're learning, what's working and what isn't. And Cynthia, um, I'm not sure you'll be able to share this. And I know you weren't there in 2007 uh, when, when they started. But, you know, one of the things that I find interesting is when foundations start investing from their endowment in this way, 
sometimes they're surprised at what they own that may actually be in opposition <laughs> or counteracting some of the grant making that the yeah. foundation has done. Do you know if the Kellogg Foundation has sort of come across any of that over its history of mission investing? You know, I don't know of specific examples of that, but I do know we have um, we have a list of non-negotiables, um, particularly around um, you know uh, you know kind of the sin industries and and whatnot, and 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 uh, you know and smoking and cigarettes and things of that nature. But um, it's one where we are constantly checking that payday lending is a biggie for us mm-hmm. too, obviously because it's really extractive of our communities. Um, so we do have a, a, that lens. I think you know it's a conversation we're constantly having. Um, amongst our investment team um, as we're learning more, uh, as we learn more about how these systems interplay and how they um, can extract wealth um, and how they can, you know, extract, extract other resources from communities. And so it's one where it's definitely on our uh, on our mind, our board and our trustees ask us about this quite frequently, and it's something that we monitor very, very closely. Well, I think, you know, I, I highlight that because it's been such an interesting finding as, as foundations have made this move into this strategy, but also for our listeners who are interested. I think that first step, it's not like, oh, here's how I'm going to invest, but just knowing what you own Mm -hmm. is a really important first step. Right, right, and and it also is it's so um, it's so illuminating. When I before I joined Kellogg, I was worked with a consulting group, and we did just that, where we would assess what's in the portfolio and go through that exercise. Obviously, it's a little bit different with an eight billion dollar foundation. Sure, I, I don't think many of our listeners have eight billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, but nonetheless, it's it's an exercise really of testing us, testing where you know do our do our actions and our behaviors. Obviously, in this case, investment actually matches up to what we're trying to do on the program, or are they running counter? And so it's been really great to, to go through that process. Um, and I think also it's been great to see other foundations going through this process and our peers and having those conversations. I know our CIO, Joel Wittenberg, is constantly talking to the other CIOs of, of um, foundations and universities, just, you know, trying to troubleshoot and figure out better ways for us to, to keep tabs on that. And I think, you know, it's a field we're starting to see a little bit more of a practice, but it's still early days. Yeah, sure. well, we commend you on, on getting into the game in the early days and certainly the you know, the actions of, of yours and of Ford and these other early actors hopefully are de-risking and demystifying the space for other foundations to get in that game. You talked a little bit about challenges early on. We were not surprised to hear that in your tone <laughs> yeah. uh, because we know how complicated the space can be. Can you talk a little bit about what those challenges look like as an early actor in, um, you know, moving that endowment towards impact that's aligned with your foundation's mission? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the challenges were around um, capacity, like our own internal capacity. How do we hire for a position like this, right? Do we go with a traditional investment person? Do we go with, you know, someone with a program lens? to um, actually pipeline, like where are these mm-hmm. fields at? You know, at, in 2007, it was not, um, this field was not nearly as uh, as robust as it is now. No, we spent, was, we would spend the first 15 right. minutes of every conversation defining impact investing right, exactly, <laughs> 10 exactly. years ago. But, and it's, it was funny in 2007, like it was just, I mean, you folks were trying to find deals. They were in, and folks were identifying themselves as impact. And some of them were, some of them were not. So it was very, very wild west. And I think those early days um, of the program, finding those deals was really challenging. We were very fortunate, however, in a partnership, we, we consulted, we worked with this consulting group, um, uh, formerly known as Imprint Capital Advisors, now and with Goldman. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were basically instrument. They were, they were out um, in the field, basically landscaping, finding out where these transactions were on our behalf, 
as well as a smattering of, of other independent um, consultants who had been in the field and had been exposed to a lot of um, the actors and players. And that's how we really started to build out our network. And, you know, once you start to one, you talk to one impact investor, you meet another and you meet others. And, and so I think for us, that's how it helped to um, unfold those initial transactions that we made um, in 2008, 2009. And then obviously we had um, the, the economic crash. And so we pivoted and ended up um, deploying a little over $40 million into community banks because there was a huge, obviously, run on the banks at the time, and community banks in particular were being hit really hard. And so we did um, we did about $40 million in deposits in community banks all over the country just to kind of keep their liquidity up. And and just um, and actually until maybe a couple of years ago, I had um, a majority, uh, still a large portion of those assets with those banks. And, uh, and since then, have liquidated, obviously, as we've transitioned programs. But those are the ways that we were trying to be responsive and, and um, to the needs on the ground, but also at the same time trying to experiment with the tool. Yeah, and, and they're really, I mean, the evolution of the pipeline and the investable opportunities in the last decade has been so significant that it wouldn't surprise me that if you're pushing to get that capital deployed for impact in 2007, community banks were going to be a must anyway in your portfolio, oh, yeah. just as an, you know, an option that could absorb that kind of capital. Exactly, exactly. And I think that and I think too at the at that time, you know, community de- development banking was going through an interesting um, uh, transition. Just as they were starting to get to scale, and you started to see a little bit more of, um, of bigger transactions out of like things like CDFIs, and you saw um, some of these venture funds starting to spin out. And so, so as we were growing our capacity, our understanding of what it took to actually do these deals. We are also seeing the field really building out. And one of the things I think, you know, that we didn't do as much of at the beginning, we certainly are doing now, um, is complementing it with grant making. Um, and, and, and the grant making, in a sense, has been really around our own, uh, not our own, but I mean, the field's understanding of what um, what impacting investing is, obviously, and in infusing in this racial equity lens, but also, you know, giving folks a little bit more to work with in terms of this experimenting um, with different approaches is to reducing implicit bias. So for instance, we have a grant uh, with the nonprofit finance fund um, who, in partnership with another CDFIer, are completely rewriting their underwriting um, process. Oh, cool. They do, yeah, and so they're trying to figure out, so they're like re-engineering their entire process and looking for where are their points of bias, right? What, like where are we actually leaving people out, you know, in our own process? And so, and we feel that that'll be a great um, uh, insight in, for folks who have similar processes that can say, you know what, maybe we can tweak this, this little process and or we can, you know, start to think a little bit differently what like opportunity looks like and how we're relieving folks um, out of the, uh, uh, you know, our pipeline of, of, of deals and things of, of that nature. So, Cynthia, I, I'm going to take you on a journey and hopefully it's not it's a little half baked. <laughs> so bear with me. Already, it's his birthday. Already. Go with it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're, so you're talking about community to bank, community banks. And on one hand, you know, one of the reasons we're talking to you today is around sort of racial equity in capital markets and community banks. We're sort of thinking about cash or maybe, you know, private and alternative investments, when you think about investing the endowment, you know, that's across asset classes. That's, you know, public and listed equities, that's fixed income, that's alternatives, it's, you know, and then all of the different alternatives underneath that. So how do you think about an asset allocation strategy from the endowment for impact, but also where do these issues around racial equity pop up? Yeah, no, great question. Great question. So, 
We think about the um, the the endowment, the the portfolio in a couple of different ways. So. In, in maybe if I step back, you know, at the end of the day, we are just a foundation. We our job is to give out money. Literally, that's what we do. And that our our endowment needs to meet our payout every year. So, what we're calling and, and just to sort of translate for our listeners, meaning you need to invest in a way that makes money, so your foundation can do its job of giving out money. Exactly. Exactly. And so we have to be very prudent. Um, and so when we thought about um, the MDI program initially, we were pretty, um, the board was very clear that we were to, you know, we had the $100 million, we could come up with whatever allocation we felt was appropriate at the time. And we did. We were pretty, um, we were pretty uh, uh, generalist um, with, uh, with our, our strategies because we were just looking for deals that, you know, had a clear need and, um, you know, it could absorb the capital. That all said, you know, we, and, and prior to me joining the foundation, I witnessed so many foundations and even family offices who would create a lot of flurry around their own process and their own kind of lens, which is fine. Everyone's entitled to their, their own strategy. But if we are in the business of seeding, you know, incredibly talented entrepreneurs, individuals who are thinking of these ideas, who are working through this, like my job is really to help to create better pathways for them, right? And I think that translates into how we think about the portfolio. So initially, we were pretty blanket. We were we were mostly private equity, probably at the highest, I think, um, of the last version of the portfolio is probably about 60% or more for private equity. And then a lot in fixed income and debt. We did a lot of community facilities financing um, out of the MRI pool. And now we are predominantly private equity and venture capital. And and why that is for us, and I know a number of our peers have taken a little bit of a different approach, but we've decided to go the private equity and venture capital route because we believe that that's where the influence play is the strongest. Um, these are these are companies who are trying to achieve scale. These are companies that will be hiring. These are companies that will be influencing, you know, various sectors. We felt that the opportunity to influence these companies that are going to play, you know, a tremendous roles in in the lives of the communities that we care about um, is a much more strategic opportunity for us to embed and to be a strong LP um, and, and direct investor to these companies and be a partner to them um, versus, you know, uh, you know, doing just fixed income or, you know, a couple of other asset classes that are a little bit more complicated. We wanted to get our capital out there more efficiently and really focus on the fund manager experience, how to integrate um, this racial equity lens, and also just, like, increase the capacity of, of kind of these impact managers, getting them a little bit more polished and ready for the, the broader endowment and trust. Thanks, Cynthia. And a reminder to our listeners, we're talking to Cynthia Muller, Director of Mission Investment at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. So let's continue on that thread, Cynthia, and talking about the the sort of priorities of um, of giving of the foundation and how that's incorporated into the impact investing targets, we'll say, and, and what's possible. So the foundation really started with educational and health-related programs, uh, but then in the early 90s, it sounds like, had a shift towards some more explicitly race-based causes. So can you talk to us a little bit about how you define the impact objectives of, I guess, both the foundation and then does that one-to-one uh, also become the impact objectives of your impact investing? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, so, 
you know, like, as you mentioned, yeah, about 20, 20, more, 20 or more years ago, we were doing a lot of research around racial equity. Um, we were very much structured at the time like an academic foundation, you know, just doing a lot of research, helping to inform our partners in, in the business sector and private sector of what we're learning, right? And um, and through that is what really helped to guide our commitment to becoming an anti-racist organization in 2007. Um, and the way that this actually plays out is in a couple of, of ways. On the programmatic side, our you know our core is is children, and we do this through. Um, creating equitable communities, access to um, reliable health care, access to healthy food, and, and, and high-quality education. Across all of that, is, um, we look at it through a lens of racial equity. So we want to understand who is benefiting and who isn't. And on the programmatic side and not on the investment side, it's, it's, that's the core question that we're asking. Who's benefiting and who isn't? And from there, we start to back out, all right, who isn't benefiting? All right, well, you know, let's understand who those folks are relative to who our target is. Is this good enough, right? It's a is the is the projected you know impact going to be something that will align to the goals that we um, that our board mandates for us here at the foundation? And so, for instance, the way that this plays out on the deal is we'll start to look at you know you know potential borrowers or investees um, of our of a fund manager, and we start to understand that you know you know how are they um, connecting to you know underrepresented managers or sorry entrepreneurs or, or enterprises. How um, how is this lens actually play out in their um, in their strategy? And 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 this is not to say that every one of our managers is investing in brown and black communities. They are not explicitly in some cases. However, they are starting to think differently about their networks and thinking differently about opportunity, which in turn is creating um, uh, stronger um, investments and, and connections to folks that that um, many of our managers wouldn't even come in contact with. Cynthia, so can you can you give us a few examples there just to sort of color this for our listeners? So when you're talking about um, how managers are looking for, um, you know, looking at sort of prioritizing, um, you know, a racial equity lens in the entrepreneurs they're seeking, you know, what are some things that you see that you say, yes, those are the indicators we want to see. That's the behavior that we like to see. Yeah, yeah. You know, a recent investment we did um, was with a group called Better Ventures out of Oakland, California. And these two guys, actually it's their second fund, and what we're really intrigued by is that they are Oakland-based, so not out of San Francisco, um, trying to hit a, a, different, a different ecosystem. And um, they are two white guys. They've got a, an associate, a female associate, and very, very committed to impact. And, you know, and they obviously know us as Kellogg. And, and, you know, and I said to them, listen, I'm not coming in as a potential LP to change your strategy. I'm not telling you to go, I would never tell you to go as an LP to, you know, to different communities. What I am going to ask you is how are you thinking about the communities and the entrepreneurs you are working with and who is missing, right? And that's basically what it boils down to. And then we start a conversation. And what's a good, um, what's a good answer to that conversation or some sort of, you know, nuance that tells you they're thinking about this in the right way? Yeah, it's really about networks. Like, it's really about those folks who say, you know what, we are not in the Hispanic community. We are not with the black community. We are not, we don't know anything about this community or, you know, are, are, are ready to answer that, that blind spot the same way they would, they, they would if they were, if we're talking about sectors. 
right? If mm-hmm. you're doing, you know, if your team had the right sectoral focus or you had the right people on the team. And, and that's how we're kind of thinking about it because we don't want to make this a zero sum, right? You have to give up X in order to do investments in, you know, black and brown communities. That's not what we're saying at all. What we're saying is that there is upside for many um, players in this, in this field. It's really about how we understand what opportunity looks like. Well, I think, I think you bring up a really, really interesting point. And, you know, I'd, my personal opinion is that you don't necessarily have to have the business case to invest with this <laughs> thesis, right, right. but rather there is, I, you know, mm-hmm. it's a real win-win here. And when you think about what's missing, and I reflect on our investment strategies through Wharton Impact Venture Associates, you know, that hustle, those networks, like that's a key differentiator mm-hmm. for you in your investment strategy, yeah. or you're sourcing the same deals that everyone else is. So talk right. about the sort of like dollars being left on the table or the real opportunity set when you think about what's missing. Right. I think about like, you know, in the, like in the student loan financing space, you know, we have been monitoring that, the, the, the crisis pretty closely as it's going to, it's already having an adverse effect on many of our communities. Um, because as many of us have been told, you know, education, you know, uh, is such a paramount of importance, but also at the same time, it's not accessible for all. And with student loan financing in particular, you're seeing a lot of actors coming out, right? Obviously, we've got, you know, actors like SOFA, and then we've got smaller actors like SixUp who are really trying to change the way that um, first gen, which predominantly end up being kids of color, um, uh, are actually engaging with um, higher ed in a meaningful way so they are actually successful versus, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, flunking out or having withdrawal because they can't get their resources together. So it's a double down on low-income, high-performing low-income students. And I think for six up for them, if you look at their company, you can see, you know, you can see in, in literally you see it and then you talk to them and you know that these folks have lived the experience of being, you know, um, students who have had to put themselves through colleges through, you know, multiple jobs and what, what have you. And I think that's for me is the factor, right? Better Ventures immediately was like, you know what, actually here's where we have gaps. Um, six up is immediately like, listen, we know that these are the students that are being left out. Mm-hmm. And so, and it's, it's connecting the opportunity gap with the strategy. And I think that's what's different for folks versus um, this uh, very, like, we need to just get brown borrowers or brown people to come work for us, right? That's, that's one strategy, and it's, and it's helpful, but it's not the only strategy. What this is, what we're trying to push is more of this lens and helping folks understand what they're leave, what's being left out, what's there, and who, um, who is who's engaged and who isn't, right? Because I think oftentimes in impact or even philanthropy, people get really enamored with, you know, the vision, the pictures of the beautiful, smiling, healthy babies and mm-hmm. all of that. But at the end of the day, how many, you know, starving babies are we not? getting to right and that's where we're really trying to take it and and really hold um uh hold the light to those those folks because quite frankly in this environment nobody else is is paying attention to them so it's important for for us and our peers who are focused on this to, to really raise that um, yeah. up to our investees and partners. And I think that that's great advice for our listeners who are entrepreneurs and trying to really make sure that they articulate all of those, um, which hopefully they have, all of those insights um, and mastery over those sectors and why their network or their community or their experience as an entrepreneur is a differentiator and being able to um, really, really understand a market in a more yeah. nuanced way and to use that um, uniqueness as a real competitive advantage because it sounds like you know, groups like yours are really looking at that. 
Right. And I think the other piece of it, too, is really understanding community. I think the, the, this whole the conversation around power, and I know you're going to be talking about reparations later in the show, but this notion of, like, who has power, how do we feed power in a mm-hmm. thoughtful way, um, and, and, um, and how do we encourage the development of power in communities? And so our hope is that you know, that our managers, each one of our managers who have, you know, several dozen companies underneath each one of them are are realizing that and helping our and our entrepreneurs to, to negotiate that power dynamic in their communities, especially as they're engaging um, uh, uh, underrepresented or marginalized communities. Yeah. Um, so I, is there anything else, I think, just sort of as we sort of wrap up this segment, what, what would you say are things that our listeners could sort of continue to take away? Maybe they are an entrepreneur, as Sandy said, or, you know, they want to be supportive of the type of work that you're doing. What would our listeners be able to do? Yeah, I think at, I think at an individual level, it's really about just looking and really seeing um, how systems are impacting our communities in a negative way. And so... Like, so, for instance, I was just um, at a bus depot, like in some random city, um, and just was watching, you know, people coming in and out and thinking about, you know, the time of the month and why the, the flow of, 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 these, of these particular type of folks are coming in, especially at the end of the school year. And I think it's being able to look at these systems and then think about, well, what, what's the play here? How do we actually start to, um, uh, you know, create different um, incentives for market players, or how do we create, give more power to the consumer or, you know, or how do we actually create better collaborations amongst um, different types of investors? And I think that that's what really gets me excited about this work. I think it's what's really, I think that's where the opportunity is um, in this space. And I think also, you know, because we have such a, a dearth of actors coming out, I mean, I'm just excited about all these different players. Um, and I think we need to be sharing these stories and these insights um, because this work is too hard. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, there's no other roadmap either. So You know, um, <laughs> I'm reminded when you say, like, just be aware of, you know, you know, observe, be aware of these issues, you know, where you see it in your own community. I'm, I'm reminded of a quote I saw. I have no idea who said it or where it came from. But it's like, eyes that look are common, eyes that see are rare. Oh, that's beautiful. And so I think that's a really interesting place. Yeah, sounds very, you had a very anthropological lens there, um, Cynthia, and sort of thinking about that. But, you know, that's not a word we use often. Uh, I think it's been sort of trumped by like design thinking as the the sort of hype (laughs) phrase in the impact. Human centered design. Exactly, in the impact investing space. But but really starting there is is powerful. The quote is from J. Oswald Sanders. Oh, okay. Our producers inform me. So shout out there. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us here on Dollars and Change. We will certainly be eager to keep an eye on the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and the great work you're doing. Awesome. Thanks, Sandy. Thanks, Nick. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> we're going to go into a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to wish Nick happy birthday again. Oh. Um, and also move into a very powerful conversation with our next guest. We will be joined by Danielle Solomon, the Vice President of Race and, Race and Ethnicity Policy at American Progress. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 